Thank you for listening in to this podcast from Valley View Church. First Kings chapter 18, verse 17 through verse 30, NIV version. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commandments and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat of Jezebel's table. So they have sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bullocks for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bullets and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they, looked, they took the bull and given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us. They shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. Now pay close attention here. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. I want to read that last part again. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. I want to share with you this morning on this thought. Revival will come on a rebuilt altar. Revival will come on a rebuilt altar. Father, I ask you now, Lord, that you would anoint this word today. And God, that you would anoint me as your servant. God, that we would preach and we would share the word of the Lord in a very special way. Father, I ask you that you will touch every life. Those that are broken, those that are empty, those that are hurting, those that are in need, every single situation. I ask you, Lord, to touch 
And I ask you to minister to them. And I ask you to move upon them in a very special way. And I ask it in Jesus' loving name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to prepare your heart to surrender everything to the Lord today. I want you to prepare yourself to surrender your heart, your soul, your life, everything to God. For He has a plan for you this morning. No matter where you are in your relationship with God, whether you know the Lord or whether you don't know the Lord, He has a plan for your life. Revival will come on a rebuilt altar. Worse than any drought that has ever touched this world as we know it is the drought that is taking place in the church world right now. Can I say that again? Any drought, worse than any drought that has ever touched the face of this earth is the drought that is going on in the church right now. What do you mean, Pastor? No brokenness, no weeping, no travailing, no urgency seems to be the norm in many of churches today. We've lost that urgency. We've lost that brokenness. We've lost the ability to weep and to mourn around the altars for those who are lost and undone and for the needs of our life. And I believe firmly with everything in me that that is where God is working in the church right now, bringing us back to that place of gathering around the altar, getting upon our knees, crying out to God, calling upon the Lord, finding Him and allowing Him to be real in us. You can make an altar anywhere you want to. You can, now, you can kneel down anywhere you choose to. And I just want to say this to you to you. The altar should not be a strange place to a child of God, but the altar ought to be a place that we visit on a regular basis. It ought to be something we visit on a daily basis. It ought to be something that's very much a part of our life and a part of who we are. Now we go back to this passage of Scripture here this morning. Elijah calls for a meeting with Ahab because of the sins of Ahab and the nation of Israel. God, at the prayer of Elijah, had shut up the heavens, and there had been no rain for three and a half years. A drought had taken place, and they were in very desperate times, if you would. And I want to just say this. The word drought means dryness. It means emptiness. It means famine. It means desolation, destruction, and in death. And that's where they were. They were in a place of dryness, a place of emptiness, a place of famine, if you would. Ahab, the king of Israel, meets Elijah with these words. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I want you to notice what he said. Are you the one who has come to trouble us? And that word trouble means to stir up. It means to disturb. It means to agitate. It means to afflict with pain or discomfort, to cause mental agitation or distress. And that's where they were. This shows you how far Israel had fallen from God's divine presence and how far they had fallen from the calling God had placed upon them. 
this king who was supposed to lift the standard and was supposed to lead Israel into their divine destiny and their relationship with God was so backslidden that the very presence, listen, the very presence of Elijah with his commitment and his consecration and his love for God disturbed him at his heart. Disturbed the king in his heart, agitated him, even caused Ahab such distress that he cried out and he said, Are you the one that troubles Israel? He is so disturbed by the commitment of the man of God when he comes into his presence. He is convicted by what he feels and by the presence of God that came with Elijah. And I want to say this while I'm here. You might as well know this, that when you get serious about serving God, when you get serious about really going after God, when you consecrate yourself to live a holy, separated, and a sanctified life, you will be viewed as a troublemaker. In the world that we live in now, if you decide to get dedicated and you decide to surrender all to God and you live that holy, sanctified life, the world will look at you as one who causes trouble. Why is that? Because most people are satisfied to live around the altar. Hear me out. They're satisfied to live around the altar. What that means is this. They're satisfied to be religious. They're satisfied to look the part. They're satisfied to sound the part. But when you have chosen to live a life around the altar and you have chosen to be a living sacrifice, you will upset the world's system. You will upset and you will disturb religious people. Because religious people can't handle devotion to God. Religious people cannot handle totally sold out life to God. Because religious people are those that just want to get close. They want to enjoy what God gives. They want to enjoy the things of God. But they don't ever want to really get in. And when you really sell out to the Lord, you begin to rock the world of those who stand on the outside looking in. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper worship. What is he saying to us? Give yourself, surrender your all, everything. And that's what pleases God. Elijah called the nation of Israel back to the altar. And let me just give you a little background here for a moment of Elijah. Elijah is not known through the Scripture as a great preacher. But when the Bible shines the spotlight on Elijah, we find him on the ground with his head buried between his knees, and he's crying out, and he's praying, and he's seeking God. That's how we find him in that key place. He's sitting on the ground crying out to the Lord. He shows us what an altar looks like. He shows us what it looks like to surrender. He shows us what it looks like to submit to the Lord. And I want to say this to you, the great need of this hour is for men and women in this church and whoever will surrender who will rebuild the altar of God again. 
The greatest need that we have is men and women who will rebuild the altar of God and not just rebuild the altar, but will go back to the altar and pray and seek the Lord once again and call out upon God and don't just pray just to feel good, but pray until they reach the throne room of heaven and they touch God. Oh, I feel Him here today. Till they feel the presence of God and the glory of God comes down. The altar is the meeting place of God. I want you to hear me out this morning. The altar is the meeting place of God. It is where you climb Mount Moriah and you give your Isaacs to God. It is the place of sacrifice where we die out to ourselves. I want to say that again. The altar is a place where we die out to ourselves. It is a place of consecration where we declare what we believe, where we prove our devotion to God. The altar is the place where we wrestle with God for a changed life. Not just for a changed situation. Not just for a changed circumstance. But a changed life. I'm going to throw this in while I'm here. When's the last time you wrestled with God over a changed life? How many times have we wrestled with God over a changed situation? Or we've wrestled with God over a changed circumstance? But when's the last time you wrestled with God over a changed life? Let me just leave something with you right here. If you'll wrestle with God over a changed life and let Him change everything about you and who you are, your circumstances will change. Your problems will change. Your difficulties will change. I'm not telling you you won't ever walk through them. I'm not telling you you won't ever deal with them. But what I am telling you is this. When you sell out to God, He'll walk through them with you and He'll make a way for you in the midst of them all. He may not move the problem, but He'll give you the strength to walk through it. He may not move the circumstance, but He'll give you what's necessary to bring you through. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. We don't always need God to move the problem. We just need God to give us help to make it through it. Why? It makes us stronger when we come out to the other side. Amen? The altar is the place where Jacob, the deceiver, the liar, the supplanter, dies, and Israel, the prince with power, is born. It's the place of change. It's the place of transformation, if you would. Elijah took 12 stones, which equal the 12 tribes. Also, it equaled divine order and divine government. Listen to this. He was building a picture of Israel back under God's divine government, living according to the word of God, not according to their plans. He was building an altar to show Israel back under God's divine graces, if you would. He rebuilt the altar. He knew that and I like this. He knew that if he could bring Israel back to the altar and bring the altar back to Israel, he could bring Israel back to God. Did you hear that? If he brought the altar back to Israel and Israel back to the altar, he could bring Israel back to God. I want you to know that the only hope, and I want to say this, the only hope for America today is to come back to the altar of God again. You need to hear me this morning. The only hope for America, the only hope for the circumstances where we are, the only hope for society the way it is, is for America to come back to the altar again. But i got to tell you where it starts. America's not coming back to the altar until the church first comes back to the altar. America's not coming back to find God until the church comes back to the altar again. Amen? Amen? 
There is no president. Listen close. There is no president, there's no politician, there's no legislation that can turn this country around. I'm going to say that again. There's no president, no politician, no legislation that can turn this country around. The only hope for change in America is God himself. If we get America back to the altar, we can get America back to God. But we got to get the church back to the altar first. Oh, I feel him. Malachi 3 and 7, return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. He said, you come to me, and I'll come to you. But you got to come to God first. If you come to him with an open heart, he'll come to you. Oh, I feel him. This is where we're at in America right now. And I want you to hear this. The greatest structure that we can build in America right now is not bigger buildings, not greater cities and greater places. The greatest structure we can build in America right now in every city, in every church, in every home is the structure called the altar. The place of weeping, the place of mourning, the place of crying out unto God, the place of finding God. The altar was not torn down by terrorist attacks. In view of where we are right now in this hour, the altar was not torn down by rioters. The altar was torn, uh, was torn down through neglect and decay and rejection in favor of a more comfortable, less painful, less humiliating way to get to God. And we need to understand if there's one thing that's necessary in the church today is to rebuild the order of God, not only in the church, but in every individual life, in every home, in every family, is to rebuild the altar of God. The greatest sin of America is pride. I preached on this a couple of weeks ago talking about pride. you remember? The enemies of revival. The greatest sin of America is pride. It's not national pride that we need in America today. It's national humility and total dependence upon God. Did you hear what I said? It's not national pride that we need, even though I'm proud to be an American, and I know everyone in this room is proud to be an American, and I thank God that we're a blessed nation, and I feel we're the most blessed nation on the face of the earth, regardless of how people are living and regardless of how things are going in the society we're living in now, but it's not national pride that we need. It's national humility and totally depending upon God for our source. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. I know I preached on this just the other day, but I want to revisit it for a moment. I know there's some wicked, evil things happening in the world, but God is not speaking to the world right here. God is speaking to the church. He said, my people. Those who identify themselves with me, those who go by my name, that's who he's talking about. He said, if my people will humble themselves and pray, if my people will repent, if my people will turn from their wicked ways, then God said, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now do you understand why I made the statement I made a moment ago? Before America can come back to the altar, the church has got to come back to the altar. 
Somebody's got to lead the way. Somebody's got to give direction. Somebody has got to take the first step forward. Somebody has got to move in the right direction. Amen. One of the greatest needs of the church world today is revival. That's why a couple of Sundays ago and this Sunday, I'm preaching on themes of the revival, if you would. And revival comes upon a rebuilt altar, but America needs revival. The church needs revival. But don't you listen to this. Revival does not come to deliver us from sin. Contrary to what many people believe, revival comes because we have repented. Revival comes because we have been sorrowful for our sin. Revival comes because we've repented and made restitution with God. Revival comes because we've torn down the altars of our heart. Revival comes because we circumcise our hearts before God. Because we have hated sin and we have loved righteousness. That's when revival comes. Revival comes when we rend or we tear open our hearts before God. We rend ourselves. Revival comes because we break down or break up the fallow ground and we seek God till He comes and rains righteousness down on us. Don't you notice that part, Eric? He said we seek God until He comes. Not till we get tired and give up. Not till we get weary in prayer and say, well, I prayed enough today. No. Revival comes when we have prayed and we have sought God until He comes. When's the last time you got into prayer with God and you prayed until His glory came down? Not until you got tired or not until you got ready to give up, but you prayed until His glory come down. I've been in prayer times before with God, and I wouldn't be there very long, and the glory of God would come down. There have been other times when I've been in prayer with God, and I thought to myself, is He ever coming, Casey? But I want to tell you something. When I held on and lingered toward God, sooner or later the glory of God showed up, and the power of God came down, and it was worth the travail. It was worth the prayer. It was worth the agony. God does not want fragments of our life or fragments of who we are. Listen to me this morning. He don't want part of you. He don't want your leftovers. Let's go back to the altar Elijah built for a minute. He said, I will dress the other book. I will present it to God as he required. Contrary to popular opinion, God will not accept any old offering or any old sacrifice. Did you hear what I said? Contrary to what a lot of people believe, he won't accept your old stuff. I'm going to say it again. He don't want your leftovers. Romans 12 and 1, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. 1 Peter 5 and 5, God resists the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Psalm 51 and 17, my sacrifice is a humble spirit, O God. You will not neglect a humble and repentant heart. What is it saying to us? When we humble ourselves, we submit ourselves before God, that's when God begins to open up and He begins to accept our worship and He begins to accept our praise. He don't want it warmed over. He don't want it heated up. He wants it to be real and alive and fresh and well from our soul. Elijah called for an investment of the people. Listen, and I want you to hear this. He calls for an investment. They had to put something in. And if you you do not ever make an investment in anything, you don't care about it. Amen? If you don't make an investment in something, you don't care about it. Things you care about, you'll invest time in. You'll invest money in. You'll invest resources in. You'll invest whatever you have to in it if you care about it. Pursuit is the proof of desire. 
When you desire something, you will go after it. If you really want something, you'll spend time in pursuit of it. You know the importance of a thing by the time you're willing to give to it. So let me ask you, how much time do you really seek God? How much time do you stay on your face? How much time do you ring on the prayer bells of heaven? How much time do you really seek Him? You see, we live in a a technology information age. We live in a time when everything's right at our fingertips and we're so used to having whatever we want right in front of us. You need an answer. I've heard this so many times. You need an answer, Google it. Let me see you Google God. I could have left that one out, couldn't I? You need an answer, Google it. But let me see you Google God. Oh, you can Google his name, but I'm talking about Google his presence. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? We're connected to everything and everyone except the one who really matters. That's what we are in this age that we're living in. We're connected to everybody else except the one who's really the most important. So many people feel like if they had to go one day without their phone, they'd just die. Amen? I'm going to preach to me and I'm going to bust my own hide here for a minute. There have been times I left home without my cell phone and had to turn around and go back and get it because I was afraid somebody's going to call me. And I might have just been running for a 15-minute errand, but I was afraid somebody was going to call me in that 15-minute span when in reality, Tim, I think it could have waited a few minutes. But we're so connected to the phones, we're so connected to these such things. But listen to me, so many feel they can't go without their phone, but many of those same people can go days and weeks without talking to God. And that's where we got to really be careful. We can't be so connected to the things of society and the things of the world where we are and not be connected to God. If we're not connected to God more than we are the things of this society, then something's wrong somewhere. I know it's not popular preaching, but i got to give you what God told me. The investment Elijah called for was 12 barrels of water. Listen, 12 barrels of water in a time of drought and famine is a tremendous sacrifice. That's a hard thing. It's a tough thing. But the point is this. If we really want to experience a move of God, it's going to cost us something. If we really want to see God answer by fire, it's going to cost us something. It will not come cheap. And in this case, there would never be fire from heaven without an investment of water. They would have never seen the fire of God fall if there had not been an investment of water. Let me say to you, it seems today that the church is in a spiritual drought. I want to be very careful because I've said it over and over. Revival is happening in this church. God is doing tremendous things. But we've got to be honest with ourselves. Everybody's not gotten it yet. Whether it's in this church or what church it's in or where it's at, everybody's not gotten it yet. But God is trying to bring the church to a place where everybody can experience revival like they've never experienced it before. But too many times there's a spiritual drought happening. Why? People don't want to cry anymore. They don't want to weep before God anymore. The, The altar used to be called the mourner's bench, and it was called the mourner's bench for a reason. Now, this younger generation, you don't know what I'm talking about here. But they used to call it the morning bench because it was a place where people would come. They would pour out their hearts with tears upon it because they were grieved over sin. And they knew they needed God's help. So they would gather around the altar and they would weep and they would mourn and they would cry out. We don't see many tears around the altar anymore. Amen. 
We don't see many tears around the altar anymore. <coughs> but I got to tell you, if we're going to see the power of God in this last hour, there has to be more time spent around the altar. If we do not have time to pray, then we should not think it's strange when we lack in power. If we don't have time to pray, then we should not think it's strange when we lack in the supernatural with God. Amen? If we don't have time to pray, we shouldn't think it's strange when we don't see God doing certain things that we really want to see God do. Because the way these things happen is when you intercede or you see God and you touch the throne room of God and then God begins to move on your behalf. Let me tell you something. Prayer is hard work. Prayer is tough. It's hard on the flesh. It's hard on pride. It's hard on the carnal mind. But notice what Scripture said. He said he made a trench about the altar. Then as the water covered the altar and the sacrifice, it filled the trench around about. This is speaking of a deep work of the Spirit. It's speaking of a deep work of the Spirit of God. It's more than a touch. It's a transformation. It's more than a blessing. It's a true change. It's more than just a little feel good. It's something that literally changes who we are. After Elijah had done all that he could do on the earth side of things, he called on God. Not just any God, but the God who answers by fire. And I'm reminded so often, he didn't do like we do a lot of times. Joe, he didn't come before God and beg God for two or three hours for God to do something. Because here's the reality. Elijah had already been in prayer a long time before he ever got to that day. Prayer was a, was a normal thing in his life. Prayer was an everyday practice. Prayer was something that was very real in his life. So when he come to that moment of calling upon God, he didn't have to beg and plead with the Lord. But the Bible said, Jimmy, he prayed a 63-word prayer. ask you something. I know it's going to get point blank. This ain't in my notes, but I'm going to ask you something. Can you move God with 63 words? Can you cause God to move with 63 words? I'm asking myself that question. I'm not just, when I'm pointing that one at you, I got three more pointing back at me. Can you move God with 63 words? I asked myself, Ted, can I move God with 63 words? Let me declare something to you. If you've been in the prayer closet and you've been alone with God and you've been seeking the Lord and you've been spending your time with God, you can move God with 63 or 2 or however many words it is. You can move God and see God move on your behalf. But if you never talk to God, don't expect Him to move because you spoke a sentence. I know that's tough, and I know that's point blank, and I know it's hard, but don't expect him to move in a sentence. If you never spend time with him, he prayed a 63-word prayer in heaven, bent low to hear the voice of the man of God, and suddenly the fire of God fell from heaven. And I want you to listen to this. When the fire fell, it consumed the sacrifice. It consumed the altar. It consumed the stones of the altar. It licked up the water in the trench. It licked up the dust. It consumed everything. 
Now, in our physical mind, we could say, well, I can see it consuming the wood. I can see it consuming the sacrifice. But the water? Consuming dust? What does that mean? God? Because God don't do things halfway. If it was us, Nathan, we'd consume the wood. We'd consume the sacrifice, but forget the water and the dust. But when God does something, God does all things well, and he don't do things halfway. So I want you to understand something. When the church goes back to prayer and seeking God once again, God will do things, things that will literally amaze us because he won't do it halfway. He'll answer the fullness of your prayers. You need a million dollar miracle? Quit asking God for a hundred dollars. Quit asking God for a hundred dollars because that's all you believe God can do. You need a million dollar miracle? Pray for it. Stand on it. Believe it. You with me? God help me. I want to tell you the supernatural fire of God always falls on the divine order of God. If we desire the supernatural fire of God in our lives, we got to get back to the altar. we got to get our lives back in order again. Why? The fire of God falls on a praying church. It falls on a praying church. It falls on a praying people. It falls on the people who seeks the Lord. And when the church, as Elijah begins to pray again, something happens in the spirit realm. When the church begins to pray like Elijah prayed, now I'm not saying you got to sit on the ground and put your head between your knees like he did, but when you get to the place that you begin to pray, you get into your position, you get into your place, and you begin to pray and you begin to seek the Lord, something will begin to happen in the spirit realm. And let me tell you what happens. When the church goes to prayer, hell goes on high alert. Demons start shaking in their shoes. Chains start breaking off. Yokes are being destroyed. Captives are delivered and set free. And sons and daughters are birthed into the kingdom of God. That's what happens when the church begins to pray. That's what happens when the church begins to ring the prayer bells of heaven. And listen to me, and I'm fixing to close. Everything that Satan has ever done to the church or against the church has had one prime objective. If you had not heard anything else I've said, please hear me right here. Everything the devil has ever done or is trying to do against the church has always had one prime objective, and it is this. Get them off of their knees and to keep them off of their knees. Knees. Have you ever noticed when you set a time to pray, have you ever noticed it seems like everything in the world comes up when you set that time? If you verbalize it, if you make it known? You ever noticed that? There have been so many times when I come into this church in the morning, and I'd come in here and I'd say, okay, at 9 o'clock I'm going in the sanctuary and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray until I get done praying, and I'm going to go on about the business of the day. I walk to the door and something will meet me there before I ever get to my office. And something meets me there. And I'm not saying that's an everyday thing. But when I set myself to pray, and I design myself to pray, and I set it up, it's almost like something meets me there in those moments. And it gets me sidetracked from where I'm supposed to be. And I get to the end of the day, and I'm like, God, forgive me. And then I tell myself I'm going to go to prayer. But guess what? I don't feel like it then. Because I missed my moment. 
What I want you to understand is everything the devil's doing in your life and everything the devil's been doing against the church and what he's doing even right now is to keep the church from praying, to get them off their knees and to keep them off their knees to keep them from seeking God, to keep them crying out God. Why? Because the devil knows that the church is on her knees, that it's going to change the world. He knows when the church gets on her knees, it's going to shake the foundation of hell. He knows that when the church gets on her knees, it's the very thing that's going to change where we are. Stand to your feet with me. One of the greatest gifts that God can give the church is a travailing spirit. Got to hear this. One of the greatest gifts God can give the church is a travailing spirit. I know this is not a popular message. It's not a popular thing to preach or to say. Out of you, God's been speaking to us. Colin told us last Sunday it's a great day to be saved. It's a great day to go deeper with God. It's a great day to reach the higher places in God. I feel such an urgency in my spirit. I feel such an urgency in my heart. If we really want things to change, we can do something about it. If we really want things to be different, we can do something about it. We may not be able to go certain places and do certain things, but there's one place every person can go to, and that's the altar. And I'm going to say this while I'm here. I'm closing. I'm trying. If you don't like the way things in your are in your life, visit the altar. If you don't like the way things are going in your family, in your home, visit the altar. Fussing and screaming at your kids ain't going to change nothing. I could have left that out, couldn't I? If you want things to change, go to the altar. Getting upset where you are is not going to change anything. Go back to the altar. I was watching a show yesterday, and it was a man had been accused of a crime. They said that the crime had happened in this certain room. I didn't know this was going to come into my message, Eric, but it was so real. So they went to this room to investigate what happened, to find evidence. They walked into this room, Anna, where the crime was supposed to have taken place. There was cobwebs, dust. One of the men said, looks like we're the first ones walked in this room in about two years. There's no evidence. 
I got to be very careful how I say this, but I got to obey the Lord. If someone walked into your place of prayer, would they find cobwebs? Would they find dust? Or would they find a place that was polished clean because it had been visited so much there was no room for dust, no room for cobwebs? Father, I have preached this word, Lord, as you would have me preach. I've given these, this people the word of God the way you placed it and poured it into my spirit. Now I'm asking you, God, to stir our hearts, to stir our minds, and motivate us to understand and to motivate us to receive. God, if change is going to take place, it's going to take us. We can't ease our way through anymore. Lord, we can't just sit idly by anymore. We can't just take things the way they are anymore. And Lord, the reality is every person makes a difference. So many times the devil tells us, well, your prayer doesn't count. Yes, it does. Every prayer warrior makes a difference. Every praying church or every praying person makes a difference. Father, stir our hearts. Motivate us to come back to that place that you designed for us and you and nobody else. Zechariah 12 and 2 said, I will pour out on the house of David and on the people of Jerusalem the spirit of grace, unmerited favor, and supplication. I want you to hear that. I will pour out on the house of David and on the people of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, unmerited favor, and supplication. What was he saying? I'm going to give them unmerited favor. He said, but I'm going to pour out the ability to petition God. I'm going to pour out the ability to petition God upon them. I'm going to pour out the ability to cry out to God upon them. I'm going to pour out the ability to find God. I want everybody in this house looking at me, and I know this is not going to be popular. I know it's not going to be easy, but I'm going to do what the Lord spoke to me. I know we haven't been opening up the altars much, but I'm going to open them up today. As I close, I'm going to get very real and very personal for a minute. But I'm asking you to get real. And I'm asking you to get personal. And I'm not picking on anybody in this room. I'm just telling you God's bringing us to a place. And before I brought this word to you, God brought it very real to me. And I'm just going to tell you. didn't know of anything, but I told the Lord, I said, God, if there's anything in my life, it's not in order, forgive me. God, if there's anything missing, forgive me. God, if anything's not right, if it's not in order, Lord, forgive me. 
because he made it very real to me. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. There's a verse in the Bible I think about so often. He said, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, he said unto him it is sin. They can get no more real than that. And I've often thought about it, Michelle. If he knows to pray and he don't do it, what's it become? If he knows to read the Bible and he don't do it, what's it become? If he knows to do the good things but he don't do them, what's it become? My interpretation. So as I close, I get very personal. But is there anybody in this room who would admit, and just be honest, Pastor, I need a move of God. Pastor, I need to get back to the altar. I need to repent. I need to get sin out of my life. Pastor, I need to rebuild the altar in my life. I need revival. Bottom line. I'm going to say this one more time. And if it pertains to you, whoever you are, I'm going to say it again. He got me first before I ever got here. So don't think just because I'm the pastor, it doesn't deal with me. It got me first. So don't feel bad if God's dealing with you. You ready? If he speaks to you, get out of your seat. Come down here. Find your place.